If you could stand with me, we'll read the scripture for today. This is generally from Daniel 1, verses 1 through 17, with a couple of minor edits, just to keep it clear and crisp. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Daniel said to the guard, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food. So he agreed to this. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, he, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray. Almighty God, quicken our ears and our understanding and bless Kyle as he delivers his message from this intriguing passage and help us, God, to take strength and, and learn of all the ways to avoid the defilement of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So over the next um, few months, we're going to be studying through the book of Daniel. We'll probably take a little bit of a hiatus from the book of Daniel when Advent hits, because um, we usually do a Christmas series around that time. 
Um, but my, my, my aim is to get through the book of Daniel in 12 sermons. So that's about three months, right? Um, 12 sermons um, because there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. So if you, if you know anything about preaching or teaching the, the Bible, it's not very easy to teach through an entire chapter, especially when that chapter is lengthy in one sermon. So you'll notice um, in the weeks to come that I want you to hear the chapter, the content of what we're reading. So, so for example, this morning, we read through most of Daniel chapter 1. I'm trying to give you what is like the heart, the substance, um, the message of the book of Daniel, so that you're familiar with it if you've never heard it before. But you'll notice that we didn't read every single word or verse, um, so just um, forgive us for that, and I hope that you can go back home and read it in its entirety. Um, but really what I'm aiming to do is to just give you the flow and heart of the story in, in what we're going to be reading on Sunday mornings. So that's why, that's why we've chosen to do that. Um, and we begin in Daniel chapter 1. Last week we had a, basically a, an introduction to discuss some of the content, the context of what the book of Daniel is about in general, and um, hopefully you learn something encouraging in that time. And we're doing this because we're passionate about reorienting our lives with God's eternal purpose and plan. We mentioned last week that the book of Daniel is filled with dreams and visions and all of this sort of apocalyptic language, and sometimes it can be very difficult to understand, but really the heart of why we're learning this is because God wants to remind us that we are not of the city of man, we're of the city of God. We live for an eternal kingdom, and we're representatives here on earth to that end. And everything that happens to us in our lives is moving us towards, it's complementing God's kingdom vision and purpose for us. So our job as Christians is to realign our love or, or to, to refocus what can be our, our love for ourselves and our love for this world and all of the plans that we make for, for ourselves and say, I'm going to take them off of me and I'm going to put them on the Lord and ask him, how am I a part of your eternal kingdom? We learn from the book of Daniel that, that God is king over all creation, that he sets up kings and he moves history to accomplish his perfect purpose. Nothing is an accident, even the tragedies of human experience. He rescues his people and we are to be his kingdom representatives now awaiting what will be the completion and finality of his coming kingdom. And this is all unveiled in incredible detail in the book of Daniel, which we will approach, of course, in the coming weeks and today. It begins in chapter 1 by describing what might seem some scrupulous or maybe even unimportant events of Daniel's life. If you read through the book of Daniel, you'll know that so much, is, so much of it is filled with sort of like this prophetic vision, beasts and statues, and some of it can be quite confusing. And God is revealing these, these mysteries to Daniel. Why does he begin with this short story about how Daniel didn't want to eat the king's cheeseburgers? What is the point of this? The first year mentioned, if you recall, was the year 605 BC. <clears throat> the last year mentioned in the book of Daniel is 537 BC. Now, if you do the hard work of math here, that means that Daniel, the book of Daniel, as you read through it, he is aging. We don't, we don't always notice that happening or see it happening because we jump from like one king, Nebuchadnezzar, to the next Belshazzar when 20 years happened in between that, right? 
But a lot of time is going by in Daniel's life, a span of 68 years. At the start of the book, Daniel is probably about in his 20s. He's a youth, maybe even a late teen. And that means that by the end of, his, by the, end of the book, he is in his 80s or 90s. Our text describes in chapter 1 a young man who is preparing himself for a life of following the Lord. And without what he does in chapter 1, we would never have chapter 2. And we would never have chapter 3 or 4 or 5. All the wonderful things that God does through the life of Daniel hinges on this moment in chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 through 34, reads this about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says, By faith they stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. In that wonderful chapter in Hebrews, we learn all about the great heroes of the Christian faith. And if you recall, it's referring to when Daniel was thrown into a lion's den of a, a den of hungry lions that wanted to gobble anything up that came in. But Daniel's presence stopped their mouths. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not burned by the fires of the furnace, if you recall, and they didn't even smell of smoke. So what does this remind of? What, what, what should this teach us in chapter 1 about being a hero in the faith, persevering in the faith? being used by God throughout our life and as a church and as individuals. It reminds us that we will never demonstrate faith in those harder and more trying and more public times if we don't remain faithful in smaller and more private ways. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson writes that heroes are not created in a vacuum. They are forged by continued experience and faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Present heroism cannot be explained apart from past faithfulness. So this morning, we're going to get a window into small micro decisions that didn't really have much of an audience in Daniel's life that grew him into a man of God that could see visions and change the course of history. Let me say one more thing from Dr. Sinclair. Growth in grace and usefulness in God's service does not begin in the world of our dreams, but in our faithfulness to the Lord. You see, before God revealed visions to Daniel, Daniel was faithful. So Daniel opens by placing him and his three Hebrew friends and others in a context hostile to the Jewish nation, to the people of God, and to the God of Israel. Babylon was where they were in exile. Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and he herded off all of the Israelites from the tribe of Judah to Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem out of a prophetic word and vision from God himself, by the way, because God had told Israel that if you turn from me and worship other gods, you will be carried off by foreign nations, and now that prophetic word is coming to pass. So though this is history, it's also part of God's plan and word. God was behind all of this. And you can go back to last week's sermon to learn um, why, he, why he was doing what he was doing and why Israel was being disciplined and so on. 
You'll learn more from it there. But the larger point that I want to make here is that history is not random. It's not merely the product of human choice, of this person making that decision and that, make, that person making that decision. God is king over all creation, and he decides our course. He, is, he has put us on a path of his projected end, and nothing can interfere with that. And he, uses, he even uses the evil decisions of man to accomplish his purpose and, his, and bring his kingdom. Psalm 24 reminds us of this when it says, The earth is the Lord's and all that therein is. All the compass of the world and all that they that dwell in it are his. So we think we're ours. We think our John Deere riding lawnmower belongs to us, but it doesn't, friend. You think that you made lots of money with your own charisma and talent, but God gave you that charisma and talent, and God ordered it to be successful. See, friends, we owe everything to the Lord. So Daniel and company are providentially placed by God in a nation that is far from their home and hostile to their God in order to preserve Israel, God's people. Daniel is in a foreign land, and he's told in Psalm 137, Sing the Lord's song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We learn this through the witness and testimony of Daniel's life. Because the forces of hell were against him. Everything was being pointed at him to prevent him from being faithful. The larger biblical picture here, the purpose of this, is Daniel was being placed there by God to preserve Israel. Why? Because the Messiah was coming through Israel the savior of not just Israel, but the nations, anyone who would believe. So though Israel was being disciplined, God was preserving men like Daniel to continue the message of the gospel so that the Messiah would be born and be the true prince of Israel and his people. But the forces of hell were against him and they're against us, friend, because we continue that gospel message to the ends of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar begins to work out a plan, not simply to conquer Israel, but to make Israelites Babylonians. He wanted the God of Israel out of their heart, and they, he wanted their gods in their hearts. They wanted to take the God of Israel out of their hearts and replace him with their idols, and that is the challenge of our world today. You see, friends, we are all tempted to replace God with all those things that we value, that this world values around us. So there was a spiritual battle very early on in this Daniel chapter 1 that he was engaged in. In verses 3 through 7, we can observe a strategic plan to brainwash the children of Israel, to make them Babylonian. Nebuchadnezzar decided to recruit a group of Israels that were, did you notice, young, attractive, and smart. So I don't think I would have made the cut. Right? Well, maybe. I'm a good day. Maybe in my 20s. Right? So they were, he was recruiting what, we, what me, we might call in our Instagram world influencers. He wanted people from Israel that other Israelites respected and would follow. Right? So... He, he recruits young, attractive, and smart young Israelites. He gives them a position of power. He puts them in his court, right? You see what he's doing? 
Wow, aren't you good looking? Aren't you smart? Hey, why don't you come live with me at the palace? Ooh, me? Wow, I must be pretty important. See, see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. It's very smart. Then, not, not only that, he provides them with the pleasures and comforts afforded only to the royal family. They're eating his food at his table. Oh, and by the way, to add to this, he sends them to the University of Babylon, of Babylon on a full scholarship. For three years, they're given an education. So this is the king's, King Nebuchadnezzar's, it's his long game to crush the enemies of Babylon, to convert the youth. If I can get the youth, I can get the nation, right? That's his strategy. And the first thing that he does is he relocates and isolates the youth of Israel. He needed to cancel the voices that taught something different than Babylonian values. So they controlled what they were listening to, what they heard. That's why they relocated them out of their, of, of their, get, of their Jewish ghettos into the Babylonian court so that they would be around other Babylonians. So they re relocated from their homes and placed them in a palace around other young, good-looking, and powerful Babylonians. No more temple, no more reading the word or law of God, no more Jewish festivals or holidays or sacrifices. Everything now is Babylonian. Take their Jewishness out of them and surround them relocate them and isolate them under our influence. Friends, it's no different today as a church, as Christians, as people of God. We are free. We, are, we do live in a culture that's free, and that's why it's a little bit more tricky. Because we can hear the word of God, and we can pray, and we have the liberty to do these things. But, oh, when Satan can't take away your freedom, he'll entertain you. Isn't that true? So all of our billboards and all of our TV shows and all of our songs and everything around us in our schools, all of it is absent from the influence of our good God and his word. And, and we, by the way, often choose to isolate and relocate ourselves. We're free to worship God as we please, yet we choose to isolate ourselves when we neglect the word of God, when we ignore the gathering of his people, and we watch more Netflix than we do read scripture. So what we're, what we're doing of our own volition under the influence of Satan himself is isolating and relocating of our own choice. We replace the voice of God with every other voice around us on CNN or Fox News, pick your poison, from Hulu or Facebook or whatever the like. The isolated Christian will eventually trade God's word and values for the world's. We don't do it on purpose. We don't do it consciously. It is slow and it is over time. So Nebuchadnezzar relocated and isolated Daniel and company, but he also indoctrinated them. We kind of hinted at this. They were taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans in verse 4. So this wasn't simply, by the way, when I was in seminary, I took a class called World Religions. This wasn't simply an exercise in kind of learning more about cultures. You remember, because this was isolating them. They, they were being cut off from other cultures. So this isn't simply an, ap an academic opportunity to learn about other nations and religions and what people believe. They were controlling what they were learning. They were turning off the influence of their fathers and replacing them with, 
with Babylonian fathers. The goal was to get them thinking and behaving like Babylonians rather than Israelites. So Daniel was being taught how to view life without God, without Yahweh. As in Psalm chapter 10 where it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. How do we view the world and our purpose in the world and our place in the world without God? How do we fill in those blanks? And that's what was happening to Daniel. And then, not only did they relocate and isolate and indoctrinate them, they were tempting them with compromise. They were given, in verse 5, a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Oh, they, they, they might, this is where they might get most of us. You know, creamy desserts and wonderfully hot lasagna and, and wine and all the, right, all the, all the stuff, of the, the comforts of this world. It was at, they, didn't ha, they didn't have this in Israel. They had it better here in the king's court. It may seem innocent enough. Why can't they just enjoy a little creme brulee every now and then? What's wrong with food? Why would food defile them? Some, I've read different kind of people on this and different commentaries that I have that suggest that perhaps the, the issue for Daniel here was that these, this food was being sort of dedicated to their false gods and he felt like maybe that would defile him through that. But the argument goes though he was eating their vegetables and all the food got dedicated, not just the meat, right? Not just tasty things, everything. So why would he be okay with eating their vegetables if that were the case? And that seems to be a good argument. We're not really told explicit, explicitly here the nature of the compromise. Why did Daniel think that he would be defiling himself here when the Bible doesn't really give many sorts of like prohibitions against what we're allowed to eat and not eat, right? We, we, we have to assume that there's something deeper, some, something underneath this. It's likely that he believed that the food of Babylon would defile him and others because it, it, it created a context of seduction. And what I could describe as two seductions, the seduction of comfort and the seduction of pride. Let me explain. If Daniel and his friends all of a sudden were to sort of jump in the deep end of all of the wealth and opulence around him, this might have weakened his resolve to do what was right in harder moments of temptation. Because now if he's got gold and food and all this stuff, he's got something to lose. And usually, when we have something to lose, we decide not to follow Jesus when push comes to shove. We just don't want to lose our status, our house, our comforts, our freedoms. Perhaps what was happening in Daniel's heart was he knew the weakness of his flesh and that if he started enjoying all the gifts of Nebuchadnezzar, that perhaps he wouldn't have the courage to say no to him when it counted. The seduction of comfort can be <clears throat> extremely powerful. What's more, he, did, he likely didn't want to become proud. Why was Daniel there? Think about it. What does the text say? He was handsome. This was a good-looking guy. Why else was he there? He was young, which also means he probably didn't hurt his back, like I did picking up my keys last week. He was young. He was strong. He was good-looking. The Bible also says that among, of all his nation, he was of the smartest. He, Daniel had it all, right? He had everything. 
So what could have happened to Daniel in his eating the king's food and enjoying all the comforts and pleasures of royal living? Well, he could start thinking, perhaps I deserve this. Perhaps I'm here because I'm so great. And perhaps other Israelites are poor and starving out there because they're just ugly and foolish. I deserve this food. I earned it. He knew that the nation of Israel was in exile and that God's city and temple were destroyed. How could he live like a king when his people were living in slavery? You see, is it possible that maybe he was trying to avoid the temptation of pride? Do you remember when King David one day was sort of, this reminds me a little bit of India, he was just sort of musing about like, he was on the run, he was in exile with all of his like faithful soldiers from, I forgot who in, the, in this context, but he was on the run. And he just says the statement like, oh, I wish I had the, the delicious water from Jerusalem. Right, so what, two of his guys, you remember the story? They decide we're, we're gonna go get our king some water. He wants water, we're going to get it. So they risk their lives, they go back to, to, to this place where David wanted water from, get the water, bring it back to him. It's kind of like when you say, I wish I had a Coke in India, and then two of your helpers disappear for four hours, and they come back with a Coke, and are like, I can't drink, you drink it. It's the same, it, it's sim that's what happens with da David. He says, this water returns to him, far be it from me, Lord, to do this. He said, it's not, is it not the blood of men who, who at the risk of their lives delivered this to me? And David would not drink it, it says. See, pride tells us that we are owed what we have. We deserve the delicacies and comforts of life because we're so smart and we've worked so hard. After all, Daniel, wasn't he chosen because he was good-looking and he was young and he was wise? Doesn't he deserve that better food? You see, Nebuchadnezzar hung before his face not something evil, but something good to earn or to win his heart and devotion and worship. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and we presume others refused to defile themselves. But finally, that's not all Nebuchadnezzar did. He introduces to them what would be, what, what I would call an identity crisis. Because recall what he did. He changed their names. Now, that might not seem like a very important detail, but it, but it is. Daniel and his three friends' names all included the name of God in their names. Daniel, El, Elohim. Hananiah, Yahweh. Mishael, Elohim. Azariah. Every time that they were called by name, they were reminded of the Lord that he is God, that they were identified with the, the God of Israel, the king of all things, the creator and savior. They, they remembered who they were just by saying their own name. So what, is, what, is, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? One of the first thing he does is he changes their names. And this isn't like, oh, Charlie. No, he gives them names with Babylonian gods inserted in. And that's a little bit more tricky for us because we don't know the names of Babylonian gods, but he changes their names to Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all including cognates of what were pagan gods at the time. So now, when their names are being called, they don't hear the name of Yahweh, they hear the name of false gods. It's the slow game of brainwashing them. And it's a strategic 
tactic, by the way. Name changing isn't new. They used to change the names of slaves to identify, to take away their heritage from them and their culture. Muhammad Ali actually changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali because he claimed that Cassius Clay was a slave name given to him by slave owners. So name, name changing is a historic brainwashing tactic. Now Daniel and his friends are being called by Babylon, are hearing the names of Babylonian gods every time someone asks them to pass the salt. Right? Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted these men to start thinking like Babylonians. The evil one does not want us to think like children of heaven. He wants us to think like children of earth. Our enemy wants us not to think like children of heaven devoted to the city of God, but children of this world devoted to an earthly city. Babylon, by the way, if you read the entire Bible and you just kind of find all the places that ba Babylon and Jerusalem are mentioned sort of together, they're pitted up against each other. Babylon and Jerusalem illustrates the spiritual war between heaven and earth. The, the sin, the resistance that we have, our hard, our hard hearts against God. The city of man versus the city of God, as Augustine once called it. The kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. In the Bible, this is illustrated in different ways. There are two gates, Jesus said. One leads to life and the other leads to death. There are two ways, Jesus said. There are two masters and you can't serve two of them. Babylon or Jerusalem, the, small, the, the narrow gate or the large gate, see? So Nebuchadnezzar was a tool of Satan. This wasn't just an arbitrary event in history. Nebuchadnezzar was a tool of Satan meant to seduce Daniel and his friends to love the city of man more than the city of God. And friends, we have the city of God. We have the prince of heaven to look at and to love and to admire and to think of as more beautiful than anything else in this whole world. As a matter of fact, the only reason this, this world tempts us that this world wasn't created to tempt us. It was created to amplify our worship for the Prince of Heaven because he made it all. But then we started worshiping the grass and the trees and the sun and our, own, and our own hearts and desires and wills. So that became corrupted and pit itself up against God, which was never meant for it to be pitted up against him. But Daniel and his friends resolved. In spite of this battle, in spite of this spiritual war, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He was insistent on remembering who he was. And one thing that I kind of noted, um, as you read the book of Daniel, there are basically four, four main characters of, um, in Daniel that are representative of Israel. They're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And something that I kind of notice as I observe, as I read the book of Daniel, um, Daniel is always called by his Jewish name, not by the name that, got, that was changed. But that's not true of the other three. And, and friends, I'm not, I'm not saying that to suggest that somehow Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were less faithful than Daniel, but just to point out that the fact that for some reason, Daniel kept getting, even though his name was changed, he kept getting referred to by his Jewish name. It's as if we're being presented with the possibility that it, it is possible for us to not be corrupted, to not be seduced by the love of this world. For us to retain our name, which is the Lord's. Amen? 
So Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel here has no great audience. He's not, he's not anyone famous yet. Nobody knows his name. He's got nothing to gain by this. Yet he resolves not to defile himself because God is watching. Daniel's usefulness in the rest of the book hinges on this one small decision to say, I am not going to do this thing that I know to be wicked. And if he couldn't be faithful with a cheeseburger, he wouldn't be faithful with lions. Right? And friends, this wasn't a hasty kind of spur of the moment. Maybe I'll just kind of decide real quick to love and follow the Lord. It says that he considered or resolved. It literally, in the Hebrew language, it means that he, he consulted with himself. He started calculating what his life could be. And he knew that the twists and turns were going to come. Harder decisions were around the corner than, one, than this one involving food. And he, he resolved that he was going to be a man of God. And that's, that's how he was going to spend his life. Friends, that's what we need to do. We need to resolve to be people of the Lord. To not give ourselves excuses to do things that we know are wrong and that offend him. To be his, to not, to resolve to be holy. He took to heart. He knew temptations were coming and he prepared for them. So must we. We must be in the word. We must speak to our Lord. We're going to notice a lot that Daniel does a lot of praying. That's how this resolve gets stronger and stronger. He's with the Lord continually in his word and in prayer. So that when, tempta so that when temptation comes, he doesn't buckle under the pressure. But did you, know that in Daniel, did you notice that in Daniel's resolve not to defile himself, he was also very patient and compassionate to others around him that we might be called we that we might call enemies of the Lord. In other words, when we see the servant of Nebuchadnezzar and how Daniel interacted with him, he was very polite. Did you notice this? He asks permission if it please you. He even expressed concern that when when Nebuchadnezzar's servant was worried, what's the, what's the king going to do if you're skin and bones? I'm dead. He said, so what Daniel says to this, if it please you, let's do a trial run. Let's do this for 10 days. They say in leadership things that I've gone to, like a way to get people to try new things, is that's how you, that, that's how you present it. Let's, let's just try it. That's how you get people to agree to do things they don't want to do. Let's just try it. So if you see me do that in a business meeting, that's, my, that's what I'm up to. He uses the word please in verse 10 when he's asking for this trial run of vegetables. You know what this teaches me? You don't have to be a jerk to be faithful. You don't have to be obnoxious and judgmental and loud and difficult, right? Jesus was reviled in 1 Peter 1, 23. He, re, he did not revile in return. But you know, no, you, do you know what else I notice about Daniel's resolve? It is confident. It is a confident resolve. He believed fully that God would honor his desire not to defile himself. And how do we know that? He puts himself through a test. He says, I'm going to be bigger and stronger on vegetables in 10 days. So let's do this. He trusted God. And in verse 15, and at the end of 10 days, their, con their countenance appeared fairer, this is the King James Version, 
by the way, the King James Version translates this more accurately, I think, in the original, from the original language. That's why I'm using it here. And at the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Now, if you recall, in the, I used the, the New International Version, it said they were healthier. Because that's, that's kind of the idea that's coming across in the language. But in the original language, it says that they were fairer and fatter in the flesh. Do you know what the word fat means in the original Hebrew? Fat. <laughs> it means fat. It means that they gained weight by eating vegetables. Now, look, I know, I know some of you are very passionate about your vegetarianism, if you are a vegetarian. But if we all switched from our diets to pure vegetarianism, my guess is that we'd all be a little skinnier next week. We wouldn't be bigger and more muscular, right? So this isn't a biblical plug for vegetarianism. This is a miracle. In other words, God made him more muscular, bigger, healthier. It's a miracle. God provided for Daniel in a miraculous way. And friends, when we choose not to defile ourselves, God provides for us in miraculous ways. Things happen that shouldn't happen. God honors faithfulness. And that's what he did with Daniel. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier. In verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Friends, God uses in powerful ways those who are faithful to him. So we must be faithful to him. In verse 19, the king found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters and wise men of all his kingdom. You see, the blessing of the Lord came on these men because they were faithful. God plumped them up on carrots and cucumbers somehow. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm trying to take the opposite approach, that God will miraculously make me skinnier by eating cake and um, subs. It's not working yet. We'll say, pray for me. Um, but God plumps them up on carrots and cucumbers. He fills them with knowledge and understanding, and he makes Daniel able to interpret, interpret dreams. God is faithful to those who have an eye for the eternal city, who choose not to defile themselves, who dedicate their lives to God's purpose and to his glory. And he sets, and he sets Daniel in the court of the king for 65 years. But they would have done None of this. They wouldn't have stared in the mouth of lions or walked through fire if they simply decided to just have the cheeseburger and drink the wine. If they chose self-service over glorifying God. Now let me close with a few more observations here. Isaiah the prophet revealed this promise from God in chapter 43 of Isaiah. And this in Isaiah 43 is foreseeing Israel in exile. He's speaking to future Israel. They're not in exile yet. But he's speaking to those Israelites that he knows are going to go through, through this exile under the nation um, of Babylon. And listen to these words. This is beautiful. This is how you know you can trust God's word. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. What did he change? Their names. I have called you by your name. 
you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Friends, to follow the Lord in faithful service brings us through fiery furnaces and lion's dens. It makes us bigger when we should be skinnier. God produces his power and changed, changes the hearts of men. So these men committed themselves to the promise of God, and God called them by their real names. He provided them with health, and he delivered them through the fire and from the lion's mouth. But God, you know what, was faithful to them in a different way, a way that we don't really see in the text, and a way that I want to invite you to consider. Because hundreds of years later, after Daniel and all these guys have been dead for a very, very long time, there were wise men that saw the star of the Messiah. And you know where they were from? Babylon. How on earth does a pagan nation, hundreds of years after the fact, know that a Messiah is being born in Jerusalem? How do these foreign pagans from the east even know about a Messiah at all? Perhaps the message of Daniel's coming prince was carried down from one generation to the next, and people were saved to the Lord that he never even met or knew because he chose not to defile himself. I was at um, the, the Baptist Convention of New England's annual conference this, these past couple of days. So I'm, I'm part of the Baptist Convention. We call it the SEND Network. That's, they trained me, equipped me, helped us start this church, right? Um, and every year they have an annual convention. It's a lot of voting. It's, some of it's not very exciting. But there's also, there's also this other kind of aspect to it where they, they sort of um, talk about things that are happening in ministry. And one gentleman named Joe Souza got up at the end and he told this story. And by the way, Joe is a Brazilian. And he, he was on stage with what felt like about a dozen other Brazilian pastors that had started churches all over New England. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of Brazilian influence in the Baptists of New England. Um, people from Brazil planting churches in New England that are also Baptists. Okay? So he's up there with a dozen or two other Brazilians, and he told the story. Early um, in the 1800s, there was a man named Luther Rice who traveled with another miss missionary named, you might know his name, Adoniram Judson. Do you know him? Early 1800s, they go together to, be missions on a foreign mis to do missions on a foreign mission field. Luther Rice gets sick. He has to come home. For some reason, he stops in Brazil. That's kind of weird. I don't understand it. I'm just taking Joe's word for it. So he stops in Brazil, and, and Joe put up for us his journal. And he said, I got to Brazil, and I realized that, th that, that um, it was filled with just people that didn't know Jesus. They were all what they called pagan. And he says, I pray that one day missionaries will come to Brazil to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luther Rice then goes home to Massachusetts. And right now, the Baptist Convention of New England is sitting on property where Luther Rice was born. Okay? Fast forward, fast forward time, Luther Rice, he goes home back to Massachusetts. 25 years later, he sends missionaries to Brazil, and in 25 years, 80 churches are planted. And now, Brazil is sending missionaries to New England with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's all because one man named Luther Rice chose not to defile himself, but to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to live his life in service of the king. You following me here? She's just like Daniel, people he never knew, never could have imagined that Brazilians would one day take the gospel back to his home. God answered the prayer of Luther Rice 200 years ago, and now that, now that there are dozens of Brazilian churches all over New England because of that ministry. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? Friends, we are called and commissioned to one thing. And we say, oh, you know, yeah, we know what you're going to say. Preach the gospel to those around you. Yeah, but that's step two. Step one, don't defile yourself. Dedicate your heart, life, mind, soul, and will to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't trade Christ's life for a cheeseburger. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, how wonderful you are. I pray, Lord, that in the weeks to come, as we start to see how you are faithful and you revealed visions and dreams to Daniel and you showed us about our future, that it all begins with a call, that you called us to be saved and that you called us to be holy. God, we thank you that though you called us to be saved by grace through faith, that we did not earn it or we, and we do not deserve it, you called us out of darkness into light so that we would be children of light. Oh God, I pray, Lord, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And friend, if you don't know Jesus in a saving way, would you come to him right now? If you're watching online or if you're here with us, would you, in the silence of your own heart, hear the call of Christ to be saved? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God in Christ is eternal life. Oh, friend, what you've been looking for, your purpose and all the things around you, is only found in a right relationship with God through Jesus. He made you to know him and enjoy him forever. Come to him. Come and get him. Cry out to him. God, save me. I'm a sinner. Jesus died in my place by grace. Oh, friend, if that's you and God is warming your heart and turning your heart and repentant faith to him, you're a new person with a new name. I hope that you can celebrate that, that new life with us uh, by talking to us so we can pray with you. God, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that your church, your people would continue on and follow you and realign our focus from our own purpose to yours. In Jesus' name, amen.